Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman David Campbell, and today we're going to talk about two main subjects. I'm sure most of you know we are, well, we're recording this the day before our first session with the National Mediation Board. And so we want to talk about the Railway Labor Act and where we are in that process. And we also want to talk about some things that you might expect from management as we enter into this phase of negotiation. And that's based on things that we've noticed at other companies and and throughout the industry during similar times. To do that, I have Will McQuillan, your MEC chairman, Chris Gruner, your negotiating committee chairman, and some other important voices that we'll bring in, Bruce York and Zach Hennigy. Both are lawyers. And before I introduce them, I want to mention a couple things. A question that I've gotten throughout the years is uh, about who is actually at the bargaining table. And I think some people have a perception that we just send some of our pilots to do all of this heavy lift. And and while it is a heavy lift and we've got some really qualified pilots to do that, that is not all we send to the negotiating table. And so the the question I I get sometimes is, why don't we have a professional negotiator? And and I I often joke when I get that, like, well, what does that mean to you? Because if those of you old enough to remember the phone book, if, if you went into the yellow pages and looked for a professional airline negotiator, you wouldn't find one. So, so what do you want from someone like that? And for me, I would want a lawyer at a minimum, but I would want someone who was very familiar and well-versed in the Railway Labor Act. I would want someone who was very knowledgeable about airline contracts, not not only ours, but the ones throughout the industry. And I would want someone who has had a lot of experience doing that. And and there are lawyers like that. And essentially all of them are on staff at ALPA. And so we've got two of those. Let's start with um, Bruce York. Bruce is the ALPA's senior advisor and chief negotiator. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Happy to be here. And, and Bruce, I, I've sort of spoke about you generally. Can you give us some more details about your background and, and what you've done over the years? Yeah, thanks, David. Um, just real quickly, uh, I've been working at Alpa since 1979, 1980, when I finished law school. Um, I uh, have spent my career at Alpa sort of negotiating contracts, starting with small regional airlines and uh, working up. I ran the representation department uh, for a while until the last few years and turned it over to my colleague, Betty Ginsburg. And I spent 10 years uh, negotiating um uh, away from Alpa in the entertainment and broadcast business, where I sat across the table from Hollywood studios and broadcast networks and independent producers and record labels, uh, representing you know news people and actors and and recording artists. And so um, I'm one of those professional negotiators you just mentioned. I think if I look back over those forty years, that's um, about a thousand contracts completed that I either bargained myself or supervised uh, that others were working on. And uh, uh, just here at Alpa, the most recent negotiations have been at FedEx and Frontier and Hawaiian and even helping out at Sun Country most recently. 
Yeah, that's that's a very extensive background, and we're lucky to have you here working with Chris. And in addition to your efforts, Zach Hennigy is uh, also here. And Zach, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And maybe you could do the same. Give us a little bit of your background. I know you're a little younger than Bruce, so well, I won't or hold that against you on your experience level. It's true. I can't compare it to Bruce's experience. I won't even try. But I have been doing this for about 20 years, both directly for uh, different unions internally, like I'm here in-house counsel and uh, working for a law firm directly prior to working with ALPA, um, but representing law enforcement officers, immigration judges, uh, a host of different cast and characters. Prior to that, I assisted in you know the broad spectrum across the industries, janitors, uh, hotel housekeepers, you know whether it's multinational corporations or small local places. Um, I've been involved in negotiations, and uh, it's exciting to be working with the team here. Yeah, and I, I like the way you put that, the, the team. You know, I, I think we often refer to it as the negotiating committee, and that's usually what we're talking about there is the three pilots there, but that's really a team that includes, I mean, I, I don't know that you almost ever get together without Zach, right? Yeah, you know, we do work really closely with all of the ALPA staff. So, um, you know, myself, uh, Rob, and Drew, obviously, uh, spent a lot of time together. But almost all the work we do includes uh, Zach Hennigy sitting there uh, working with us on language and coming up with ideas, and Liz Spear looking at costing and headcounts and everything else that we're doing, our ENFA anal analyst. And uh, Bruce and I also, we talk regularly, and, um, you know, he's at, I would say, 95% of our uh, negotiations directly uh, sitting there with us at the table as well. So uh, yeah, yeah, all of us do work very closely together and it's incredibly helpful. I'll say too, I think one of the benefits of having pilots at the table is is you want someone who's going to live the contract involved in the process. And you understand it in a in a visceral way, the way that someone who, who isn't a pilot may not completely get. Yeah, you know, there's different models for how different labor groups end up by negotiating contracts. Sometimes they'll send a, you know, a lawyer to go directly negotiate and just give them parameters. And then, you know, then they bring back the proposals from there. But uh, like you said, I think uh, ALPA's model of uh, having pilots at the table that are bringing the priorities forward and being able to uh, articulate a lot of, um, you know, frankly, we have a much more complex contract than a lot of other labor uh, groups. So being able to articulate what the priorities are and um, why it's important to us, I think, is uh, useful, uh, particularly in our context. But then having that ALPA staff uh, behind us there and, and driving it home is uh, a great asset. You know, and I think one thing, one important point to make is that while we're elaborating on how much support we have and how, I guess, experienced the staff support is that we have, again, all the priorities that we're articulating, that we're negotiating come directly from the feedback to the reps from our polling. I mean, this is very much an Alaska Airlines pilot driven priority effort, right? And it's not, I think sometimes we hear from the company all the time, actually, that they think that somehow our national assets or that it's a national agenda, our national assets are driving the narrative. And that just simply isn't the truth. They're here to support us. And this is very much a bottom-up pilot's priorities that make their way to the bargaining table and, and become reality. And we're just lucky to have that experience and that support staff in hand. Yeah, I was going to say the model is pilots and staff working hand-in-hand hand to bring the experience. And and background, but pilots generating the proposals and making final decisions on them. 
That's absolutely right. And I think another narrative we hear from the company is not only national, but it's just the the core group of the elected MEC that's driving the agenda at the negotiating table rather than the pilot group who is given marching orders to those who are at the table, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I and it's I think a really important point to stress at how pilot driven this is, is the fact that in the end, it will be the pilots who ratify the agreement. Right. And that, that's a point, obviously, that gets made frequently in negotiations, interactions with the company and things like that, is that the goals, obviously, that we're articulating, the needs that we're negotiating come directly from the pilots. And in the end, it, we can talk all we want around issues and they can share all the perspectives in the world that they want around issues. But we have to have a ratifiable agreement that reflects the priorities of our pilots. That's right. And we'll get more into that as we talk about the Railway Labor Act process. But for now, I want to go back to you, Bruce. And I, since you've seen a lot of these, I'm curious if you have any perspective of what pilots might expect to see from management or at least what's happened at other companies when they enter the, the stage that we're about to go into, which is entering into mediated discussions with the NMB. Yeah, David, I'd be happy to try and give you a rough outline and follow up with questions if you have them. Entering mediation under the Railway Labor Act is a process that sometimes has been lengthy but doesn't need to be if both parties are committed to solving problems and getting things done. But what typically happens in the mediation process is the company... Uh, oftentimes steps up its efforts to minimize the impact of bargaining on it. So, for example, it'll routinely exaggerate what it's doing uh, in the mediation process or at the bargaining table to address concerns we've raised. So they'll frequently step up their communications. Alternatively, they'll tell you how addressing your legitimate proposals that other companies have agreed to without harm will hurt it and prevent growth. Um, they'll sometimes try and favor certain groups of pilots over others, senior versus junior, Seattle-based versus commuters, or San Francisco-based versus other bases, or worry other portions of the pilot group by doing things that concern it. The company will sometimes enforce certain policies more vigorously or inconsistently to um, worry pilots. Companies will sometimes say, they just need more time. We'll deal with this issue next time. We can't do it now, is a favorite um, effort of most managements. And there'll be a host of other things generally designed to worry pilots, concern pilots, uh, temper pilots, proposals, and all of those things, frankly, are um, a clear sign that what the pilot group is doing successfully, that is staying unified, is making them uncomfortable. And they uh, will, will just try anything they can to uh, even up the score a little bit and uh, get pilots distracted, divided, uh, and, and undermine unity that exists. 
And, you know, all that is a long way of saying, you know, my view, what the Alaska pilot leadership has been doing for the last couple of years and the negotiating committee has been doing is working and we should keep doing it. That is following fully pilot group direction that we get through meetings and coffee sits and polling, sharing everything we're doing transparently at the table, which we've been doing, and bargaining fairly and fully to address issues that Alaska pilots have identified. That's what we're doing. That's what we should keep doing. And, uh, you know, I think you can count on seeing the things I mentioned and lots of other things from the company as a way of of minimizing the things they have to do um, and trying instead to split pilot groups and have them temper their proposals. I hope that's helpful. I think it's super helpful, Bruce, because that is exactly what we're feeling to some degree. We spoke to it on the last podcast talking about issues of pilot frustration and pilot concerns and to some degree pilot anger and and feeling the pulse of that. And I think David and other people who've been here for a long time can speak to the, the issue of morale. Maybe we'll turn away from culture and talk about where morale is right now. And since the post-Casher era, have we ever felt it this bad in terms of pilot morale? And as you know, or anybody who's been through the other previous negotiating cycles, I think can probably look back and feel or cite examples of exactly what Bruce said, what he identified there, right? That same frustration, but never on this scale. And that's kind of what we're trying to address here is to have a conversation around where we are in the RLA process, making sure that everybody understands firmly where that is. And I think to some degree, how pilots just understand and be guarded against what I think is um, something that we've seen before and something that is actually designed for them to feel and make sure that they understand where it comes from. So one thing I wanted to address off the top, and then we'll, we'll get into the details about the Railway Labor Act, is in, in a way the elephant in the room. Why can't we strike now? If we think the company's not addressing our concerns, why aren't we doing more right now? The Railway Labor Act, which applies to the airline industry, requires release from the National Mediation Board. Um, so that's a process that that starts early on with uh, the direct negotiations that we've been going through. You, know, you issue Section 6 notices, tell the other side that you want to bargain, you want to make some changes to pay, work rules, etc. Then you get into negotiations, you go through bargaining. Hopefully you come to an agreement. But you just can't go out on strike at any moment. That is the, uh, it's one of the main overarching themes of the Railway Labor Act. Harmonious labor relations, uninterrupted um, stream of commerce. And even now as we're entering the mediated negotiations, one of the goals of the NMB and the mediator that we're dealing with is to remind us you don't just get to walk out on strike. That is something very specific that the, uh, the NMB guards against and controls. Why are we in the Railway Labor Act in the first place as an airline? How, maybe some of that history might be interesting. So back in 1934, when the RLA was enacted, uh, a few years later, Congress decided that transportation, basically this, the airlines belonged in under the same set of rules as the, uh, the RLA. And again, back to that overarching theme, 
transportation is crucial to a functioning economy, and and they thought that it made more sense within the RLA than, for instance, the NLRB, which controls other private sector uh, businesses. Uh, the rules of the road are just a little bit different. The NLRB, for instance, allows a deadline to the contract. At the end of bargaining, you know that at midnight on X day, uh, if the parties don't have an agreement, there's automatic release. And then the, the parties get to duke it out. Uh, there might be a lockout, there might be a strike, parties might continue, but that's controlled internally within the parties. Congress didn't think that transportation should be governed the same way. So basically the, the idea with the contract that pilots work under, it's amendable. You've heard this, you guys have talked about this numerous other times. And the point there is you continue to work under the status quo conditions, that's the idea, um, so that the parties can continue to bargain, but you don't just get to say, we're gonna disrupt the transportation industry. So what can we do to move the needle without being in self-help? I think there are a lot of things that we can do. And in, in, uh, first, communicating with the pilots on a consistent basis, making sure that the negotiations are transparent and people are brought up to speed on where we are. Uh, there, there are many ways to pressure the company uh, by, as Joe Youngerman, Captain Joe Youngerman has repeatedly said, report the news. You know, let people know and, and be honest and, uh, and build the pilot's trust on what we're doing here. We're not trying to hide anything. Point out what the, when the company does something wrong. I think that that's another way to pressure them. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm belaboring this question, but I do want to dig a little bit deeper into it before we move on. So perhaps I could frame it like this. While, yes, we're in the mediated phase of Section 6 of the Railway Labor Act, and while, yes, there are some rules that govern that process, that doesn't mean that our hands are tied within the process, and it doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we can do. And Bruce, I know you and I have had this conversation before. What would you say about this process? I really would say we don't rely just on the Railway Labor Act to get our business done that we continue our strategic plan is is you know we'll continue to inform current and prospective pilots what it's like to work at Alaska for, and under our Alaska collective bargaining agreement versus um, what it's like at other companies that are also hiring we share facts with industry analysts and publications to make sure there's widespread understanding of um, of what's going on here at Alaska. And it's why we followed the company's earning call with our own. And we're gonna, you know, continue to publicly highlight ways that the company is or isn't living its own values. Uh, because we think that's all part of pilots understanding uh, whether a career at Alaska is one they want to pursue. And those things sometimes move the process faster than waiting for each threshold in the Railway Labor Act. Another question I have is, and we've mentioned this before, that it doesn't really matter what venue we're in in negotiations. If the company's not willing to address the pilot's concerns, it's going to be difficult. So if that happens now that we're entering into mediation, what does the Section 6 process do to help address that problem? 
Yeah, well, first, I just want to highlight that the uh, Section 6 process or the RLA process is all really a backstop to what should happen with two parties coming together and reaching an agreement. And so ideally, that happens in direct negotiations, which is just negotiations without a mediator. You know, we, you sit down and you solve problems, or at least you work hard to narrow them down. And, um, and then if that doesn't work, you know, then one party, like the company did, file for mediation. And one of our big concerns is that we are still far apart on a lot of issues. So when you look at the normal mediation process, usually it's to, you know, resolve a handful of things you have left. But I mean, we still have a lot of complicated uh, concerns that we need to get uh, moving along. So, you know, from that point of view, as we get into mediation, I want to make it clear that your priorities you know, aren't, you know, they, they remain what they are. So we're still bringing your priorities to the table. We're still working hard to solve your issues. And that, from our perspective, doesn't change. So what the mediator brings is somebody to help the parties, you know, talk to each other and then get through um, the process, really, to resolve those disputes. But as far as the goals that you've articulated, uh, those have been heard loud and clear by your MEC reps, and they've been you know, translated loud and clear to the negotiating committee. And the clear direction is that we continue to um, work hard to address uh, your concerns and that those don't change just because of the presence of a mediator. And then so after that, um, I think, you know, we'll have Zach talk a little bit more about what happens down line, you know, as far as the backstop goes. But the bottom line is in mediation, you know, we're still going to be doing the same things we have been doing. And that's addressing your concerns and then communicating it clearly back to you how negotiations are going. Picking up on that, it is helpful to have sometimes a mediator in the room. I won't say universally that's true. I've been in a number of situations where it isn't helpful. But with the mediator, we have his expertise working with the NMB for, I believe, a couple of decades at a minimum. I believe that's what he said. Hopefully, he'll be able to get the company to to find areas where solutions make sense. And we will attempt to you know, illustrate that during these upcoming days in the mediated negotiations. That doesn't mean that he has the power to force the company to agree with us. Um, he certainly won't force us to necessarily agree with the company. The idea is working through the problems, getting the parties to, uh, to come to an agreement. And that's, that's, his, that's his role. It doesn't mean that we give up or he has any power to force us to agree to anything if it's, it's not a pilot priority. He has a number of tools in his bag to try to get the parties to understand that this is important. Like he can set the time, the place, and negotiations, which can be effective, get people to focus, and, uh, and point out problems, frankly, uh, where either party might have you know, a, a misunderstanding of the realities at play. Um, obviously, we think that the pilot priorities are reasonable, and, and we've been pushing them, and, and that'll continue to be the case, like Chris just said. Uh, but... When we get into those talks, uh, it doesn't mean that one, again, anybody can be forced to do anything, and two, that we have to give up on anything. Let me add in, um, you know, from the mediation um, perspective, there is someone in the room who's usually helpful in pushing the parties, if not uh, forcing them, to be more reasonable. And in this case, um, a mediator is going to assess the party's conduct and the proposals. 
And as we've reported to pilots, we have proposals on the table that legitimately address concerns they've raised. Their proposals and approaches and solutions that have been agreed to by virtually all other companies without harm to those companies. And if those are important for us to maintain, and you know, that's up to the pilot negotiating committee, um, then eventually we're going to get to an impasse uh, on those key issues where we're still insisting that they be addressed and the company is or isn't willing to address them. And once you get to an impasse um, and neither party is willing to modify its position, then it's appropriate under the Railway Labor Act to seek a release from mediation and the start of a 30-day cooling off period uh, where the parties really have to assess whether they're going to modify their positions or not. And again, uh, the proposals that are on the table aren't unique. They aren't watershed. They aren't trying to break any new ground in the industry. These are all solutions that have worked for other companies. And, and uh, the committee believes, and I agree, that they could work here too. And, and that's something, Bruce, that I've said so many times that is so frustrating to us on, on two fronts is that we brought up the idea of effective problem solving. And they've demonstrated that capacity when it's something that is in the company's interests or benefits them and pilots. But also, to your point, right nail on the head, is that nothing that we are doing or advancing or advocating for is groundbreaking. It's litmus tested. It's templated. There are plenty of examples about how that would play out and how that would work here. And so the intransience that we experience at the at the table is just incredibly frustrating. And I'll just put a point on it, unnecessary, absolutely unnecessary. All right, thanks for discussing those ways that the Section 6 can help us. And throughout this process, another important way to move the needle is the unity of the pilot group, and more specifically, the display of unity. So it's important to wear your lanyard, to wear your union pin, and, and any other kind of displays that, that we create for you. And we're going to have one on April 1st. I'll talk about that a little bit more in the podcast, but put a little bug in your ear that on April 1st, there'll be an opportunity for pilots to be more involved at visibly showing their unity. So Chris, there's some questions about openers because we've been negotiating for a while and those openers that you mentioned, were, they're old now. Tell us about what openers mean and don't mean and where you're going with those. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that bargaining is a process. And when we talk to our negotiators that have been doing this for a long time, they've helped us build a structure that you know, makes sure that it achieves the end result that we're looking for. So when you start, you know, we do put openers on the table and they kind of outline the, the broad goals of the pilot group based on your feedback. And it helps both parties kind of frame how we prioritize things, helps the other party especially understand, you know, what we're trying to achieve in this round of negotiations. But then as you move through it, there's different steps. You, you don't stick to it 100%, but generally, you know, we build first with looking at some lower tier, easy to solve type issues. So what are some things we could just get out of the way? And then now you start building from there into more complex, difficult issues, primarily the cornerstone for us, the big ones, right? That we're looking at our uh, work rules and scope. So now you're building a structure. 
once you kind of have that structure piece in place, now you start laying in the economics. So I want to be clear, we haven't touched economics yet. So that's something that uh, is still coming up down the road. And I mean, it makes no sense to do it right now. We don't know how it interplays with all the work rules and everything else that we have. Basically, at the end of the day, you kind of see how all those uh, pieces impact the pilots and the company, come to an agreement, and then ideally close the contract up, then throw it out for a vote. Yeah. So just to be clear, the economics, which would include wage rate, for example, were not even part of the opener. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of pieces that basically directly impact the cost of the contract. So you end up looking not just at wage rates, but percentages for the DC contribution values. For example, would be part of that discussion. Uh, the short-term disability uh, caps that's going to be part of that. Looking at different components of the uh, different parts of the contract that directly impact primarily the uh, financial aspect of the, the contract, and maybe not the structural piece so much. And we certainly understand that the landscape is changing, just like in the JCBA negotiations, it evolves over time. And sometimes that refines what pilots are expecting or what pilots uh, feel that is is appropriate. And we obviously are driven by polling and feedback directly to our reps when when it comes to finally putting those priorities on the table. All right. Well, we've hit most of the big pieces of the Railway Labor Act in this discussion, but Zach, maybe you could just summarize the flow of how all of this works. Sure. And I think the negotiating committee did a good job in their written communication to the pilots a few weeks ago. And I would urge people to go back and look at the flow chart that's there because it shows exactly where we are in the process. And, and I often refer back to the flowchart. Uh, our, our mediator at the NMB gave us a flowchart of his own uh, when we started, uh, had our first initial session. Uh, it's just helpful to conceptualize where we are in the process. And to you know, just kind of sum it up, negotiations start with notice and contract openers like Chris was just talking about. We did that a couple of years ago at this point. It was 2019. We did, you know, we were engaged in bargaining on a consistent basis, trying to, to solve the problems that we've you know, communicated and discussed previously. At some point, if you're not able to get to an agreement, like we haven't yet here, uh, a party can apply for mediation, go through the process, and you're still negotiating that whole time. And nothing prevents the parties from getting to an agreement. And hopefully we do get to an agreement short of being released or going on strike or anything like that. Um, but as we move through in, these, in this next phase, uh, with the the mediator, um, hopefully we'll we'll achieve our goals. But if we don't, uh, we'll make the case that we should be released. Prior to that, just as kind of a technical note, the mediator will offer arbitration, and that's a process that this MEC is familiar with. They've seen that before, where we're basically then we make a pitch to a third party neutral. We'll be able to define the uh, some of the terms of the contract. And, but that's not a process that either party has to agree to. Uh, it's just something that the mediator will offer. And if either party says, no, that's not the route for us, and I'll let others speak to that, um, <laughs> then we move into the next phase, which yeah, is a let, cooling I'm off. I'm sorry. Yeah, let me just ahead. put a pin in that point sure. here. I, I just really want to highlight it that there is no way we can enter into arbitration against our will. We, we have to willingly enter into that. And I think I can speak pretty safely for yes, the MEC that there's no appetite for that. 
Yes, I believe that's an accurate characterization, not just obviously the MEC, but as we said, the the sentiments of the pilot group, right? Yeah, this, absolutely. This pilot group, whether you've been here for two years or 20 years, has seen that movie before. And I would say that there's a fair characterization. Yeah. So it's, I think it's important to, as you, as you mentioned, it is a part of the process that the mediator will proffer arbitration, but we are not forced to accept it. That's correct. Yeah. Absolutely. So sorry no, to interrupt. No, nope. <laughs> that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, at that point, we're going to obviously say we should be released and we move into the next brief phase, which is a 30 day cooling off period. Again, kind of going back to that overarching theme of the RLA process. They want people to take a step back, hopefully come back to the table during that period of time, hopefully figure out, let's find a way to get to an agreement. If that doesn't happen, then the parties are uh, free to use economic tools. Um, and that would include going on strike or being locked out. So then there's one last step as a, you know, after the 30 day cooling off period, uh, and that's referred to as a presidential emergency board. In that situation, the president will refer uh, the case to a board, and that board will make suggestions on the on the negotiations. Uh, the parties, again, they don't have to accept those. And after 30 days there, the parties are free to use their economic weapons. And again, I, I'll just say it again. At any point, you know, the parties can come to an agreement. Uh, nothing prevents that from happening. But that would be the end of the process. I would just say that presidential emergency boards are discretionary on the part of the president. They don't happen very frequently in the airline business, and uh, one might never be appointed. That flowchart you mentioned is also available on the website, and I'll put it in the show notes too so people can click on it here. And I think it's it's valuable to stress that it's a flowchart, not a timeline, and that, that there's... Um, there are no specific, other than the 30-day cooling off period in the PBE that you mentioned, there's, there's no timeline, so to speak of. With that caveat, can you talk about what we might expect in the, in the mediation section of this? Sure. You're absolutely right. There is no specific timeline on how long parties might be in a, uh, mediation. Obviously, the government, this government agency in particular, has goals that they want to meet. For instance, often they think they try to wrap these things up in less than a year. Sometimes it lasts longer, but it doesn't have to. Uh, like Again, I think the parties, we certainly have a desire to wrap this up. I think the company should equally have that desire. Tomorrow is going to be the first day we're really getting into the substance of our negotiations in front of the mediator. We've prepped him and given him some background information, a fair bit of background information. Um, but he's going to have to feel us out for a little bit. So it's not going to happen at the end of the week. We're not going on strike next week. I, I, can, I can promise you that. But I, I think after the mediator gets a feel for us, gets a feel for where the parties are and how far apart we are um, or, or what he can do to get us closer together, that'll dictate how long we're in mediation. So we continue to do like Chris said. We drive our agenda. We, we seek our priorities. And hopefully I get there. But there is no specific timeline. And Bruce has had more experience over his 40-year career uh, seeing how some of these cases play out. You know, it, it depends on the situation. Yeah, Zach, thanks. And um, I think you you gave the, you know, the right summary and technical explanation. Um, I, I would just add, though, that 
uh, mediation takes all forms. And when a company is motivated, uh, these things can get done in less than 30 days. Uh, and certainly have seen them when people roll up their sleeves and want to solve problems to be finished in two weeks, including on, on important issues. I think the important thing to remind folks on, we don't rely, you know, again, we don't rely just on the Railway Labor Act or the work of a mediator, that pilot unity is a key element in motivating companies. And we don't take any vow of inaction. You know, we are free to hold pilot events, including large events. We are free and do continue to communicate with prospective pilots and industry analysts and the public about our dispute and our issues. We are free to take strike votes. We are free to, if the mediation process isn't working, to request the board to move the process to its next stage. There is nothing that says we have to wait for any specified length of time to do any of those things or to keep from doing those things when we conclude that the process just isn't moving along. And I'm sure the MEC is gonna be watching the process carefully and determining whether it's moving along or not. And if not, it's time to move to the next step. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. And you know, you mentioned that there's plenty of things that we can do in the interim that don't rely on the RLA. And one of those is what I mentioned a few minutes ago, this event on April 1st. So we are going to picket at all bases on April 1st, which as I'm sure most of you know, is significant because it will mark two years since our amendable date and nearly three years since we started negotiations long enough to get an agreement. And so, Will, I'll have you correct me if I'm wrong, but this company still at least appears to act as if the pilots are not driving the goals. And is that a fair statement? I think so. I think we've certainly heard plenty of it suggested um, and sometimes even said explicitly in conversations, especially in and around job security, that that's a a false priority of, of our pilots. And nothing could be farther from the truth, obviously. Right. It, it, it is the pilots. And so I'll say to all of our pilots listening, they need to hear from you. And coming out to this picket is a really important and, and valuable way that you can help tell management that this is your goal. And so we will have opportunities at, at every base for every pilot to be involved in this picket. So put that on your calendars and, and we look forward to seeing you out there on the, on the picket line. Will, as we wrap this up, do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to make sure we're, we're clear about? Yeah, I think there's a few a few points to make. And even though we've kind of already stated when we're recording this, I will put it back into a timeline that is, is I think, relevant to what I want to say. You know, we just finished an MEC meeting um, and not just a first quarterly meeting, but it, one in which all of our committee chairs, all of our volunteers had the opportunity to brief your MEC. And I think there were a couple of real takeaways in that. As we stated on that last podcast, there are real issues of culture and real palpable unhappiness in this pilot group. And and they all said at a level that even those of us who've been here for a very, very long time, as you and I said earlier, haven't seen since the wake of the cash arbitration, uh, as well as other negotiating cycles that we've seen. And 
each of these chairmen and your elected reps shared very grave concerns about just how bad things have gotten. And we said a lot of that on that last podcast. But trust me, again, that these points have been taken to senior management and they understand those concerns. But, you know, that isn't the point necessarily. I think, as we said, the purpose of this podcast was to bring pilots up to speed on kind of where we are in the process but also to understand the landscape and some of their frustrations and how all the frustrations and how some of the the things that we're seeing and hearing fit into that. I hope that pilots can take away some of what they're feeling and seeing and understand it for what it is. Like I said, those of you who've been here for some time have seen this movie. And as Bruce said, for example, pushing the limits of the contract. Our contract compliance calls are at record levels. And we've seen a lot of narratives here recently, in particular in and around COVID quarantine policies, mask policies, and well, COVID in general, that suggest that ALPA was involved. And I would ask simply that pilots evaluate those narratives pretty critically. We've talked a lot about unity. And in that regard, I'd suggest that one of the greatest threats to unity are rumors, especially rumors that suggest that some of the frustrations you feel and some of the things that you're experiencing belong in ALPA's lap. Something I can assure you of is is absolutely completely false. As we've said, we're tirelessly advocating nothing but your interests. And as we've also said many times, we're committed to that transparency. So when you hear a rumor, think about how that rumor divides us or might be designed to focus anger towards your union. And, And don't fall for it. Call your elected reps, read the communications that are put out, listen to these podcasts, And as I always say, above all, despite the frustrations, stay professional, be kind to each other, be kind to our passengers, and stay unified. Yeah, thanks, Will. And I think that rumor issue is a really important one. And sometimes it may be hard to tell if what you're hearing is is a rumor or, or factual. So I just encourage people, especially if you hear something that makes you angry, call the source, call your rep and find out if what you heard is accurate. That'll go a long way to dispelling those rumors or at least letting you know what's true and what's not true. We're always happy to tell the story. Yeah. You can know anything that's happening in this office. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Will. And a special thank you to Bruce and Zach for coming in. Thank you. Thanks. I think your input that you provide for this pilot group is really valuable, so I'm, I'm glad they've had a chance to get to know you a little bit better. Well, you've been listening to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I've been your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell.